0: Well, we are in part two of our series using that movie, God's Not Dead. That's our backdrop. And it deals with a real-life scenario that's actually going on today at our universities, in our political arenas, neighborhoods, and even in some people who frequent churches. The debate about God and his relevance in our lives. And in the case of the movie... Whether or not he actually exists. I mean, that's a question. Does God exist? You're probably asking, well, why would we talk about that in church? Doesn't everybody believe? Well, how much? How much do you really believe God exists in every area of life? Josh Wheaton, he's the main character. He's forced to defend God's existence in his philosophy class at the command of Professor Radisson who considers Josh's faith blind superstition. That's what he calls it. The movie raises some very good questions for all of us as Josh begins to defend his faith publicly, something many of us might hesitate to do if we were faced with the same situation. Hopefully, after this series, we will feel a little bit more confident to imitate what Josh does. So let's dive in. We've been talking about questions from this movie. The question today is this, is our faith blind? Is it just blind faith? Oh, I just believe because. Or are there truly rational supports for believing Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? There are numerous reasons we could use to be confident in this reality, but we're just going to examine five of them five realities. First of all, the Bible. The Bible. Now we're going to spend most of our time there because it's by far the most important uh, support for our faith. Jesus is quoted saying this, what I'm about to tell you is true. Now everything Jesus says is true, right? But whenever he says something like this, it's kind of like the two by four treatment. Boom. Listen to this. Make sure you listen to this. He says, heaven and earth will disappear before the smallest letter disappears from the law. Not even the smallest mark of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is completed. So let's examine the New Testament. Just take that. New Testament, it's viability. First of all, we're going to examine it as a reliable historical document. Is it a reliable historical document? Then we're going to look at the, the question, is it a supernaturally inspired document? So first of all, a reliable historical document. There are tremendous reasons to be assured about the authenticity of the New Testament. In fact, watch this, more than any other ancient manuscript. Hmm. But to fully appreciate that, you need to understand two primary questions that guide linguists the scholars that kind of criticize ancient text, there's two things they go by. One is how many copies are there to examine and compare? Copies. And how close in time are the oldest copies to the originals? We don't have any original manuscripts from all those ancient writings. They're dust. Okay? We don't have any original. We have copies. So Obviously, you can see that the more copies that exist and the closer in time the copies are to the original, the more accurate the results are going to be. So how many copies of the Bible do we have to work with? Just the New Testament. There are 5,664 Greek manuscripts and over 19,000 more copies in various other languages. A total manuscript base of over 24,000 600, pushing 25,000 copies. That's a lot. Now, to get an inkling of how significant that number is, we need to compare that to some other ancient manuscripts. How do they add up against Josephus or Thucydides, who are rarely questioned, rarely questioned. The next closest document in the significant copies would be Homer's Iliad with a whopping 643 copies. Wow, that's it. The New Testament overwhelms that number by over 24,000 copies. It's amazing. All the other major works from ancient history, such as Plato, Caesar, Pliny, Euripides, Eur- uh, Euripides uh, Herodotus, you know how many? Twenty. Twenty. 20 copies, usually less than 20. Aristotle, this one blows me away, Aristotle, 49 copies. You hear of atheist, but have you ever heard of an a aristotelist Nobody questions that. Only 49 copies compared to upwards to 25,000. That's amazing to me. Now what about the time frame? The entire New Testament was written within 70 years of Jesus' resurrection, okay? Now, notice I didn't say 70 years from the copies to the original writings. That's from the copies to the event that the originals were written about, just 70 years. That means there were many people still alive when the New Testament documents were being penned. Witnesses who could have easily contested their authenticity and accuracy. Why don't we have any other arguments? Nothing. We have no other arguments. And there were many more people against Christianity than there were for it. The significance of this can be seen when we compare the next best ancient manuscript copies, Homer's, Iliad, 500 years difference between the original and the copies. Conversely, the New Testament, one one piece of the New Testament, John 18, is dated within 25 years of the original writings. Ironically, none of these other manuscripts are ever seriously contested, despite most of them having an 800 to 2,000 year difference between the originals and the copies. Sir Frederick Kenyon, former director of the British Museum, said, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest manuscript so short as that of the New Testament. So when somebody challenges the historical reliability of the New Testament, they probably have never actually investigated their own challenge these New Testament copies have a 99.5% accuracy rate. New Testament specialist Daniel Wallace notes that although there are many differences in the various copies, most of the differences are completely inconsequential, spelling areas, inverted phrases, and the like. In the entire text, he says of the of the two, of 20,000 lines, in the Greek, right in lines, 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt. About 400 words. And none affects any significant doctrine. So the differences don't make any difference. <laughs> Greek scholar uh, D.A. Carson sums it up this way. The purity of text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. So when someone says that the Bible cannot be trusted because it has been translated so many times like the telephone game where the original message becomes eventually a joke, we can just dismiss their criticisms as the real joke. (laughs) As John Adams once said, facts are stubborn things. The facts are there. If God did author the Bible and meant it to be his primary communication device to us, don't you think he would, as the Almighty, he would supernaturally protect its contents? With that in mind, let's talk about the Bible as a supernatural document. The Bible says about itself, God has breathed life into all Scripture. It's useful for teaching us what's true. It's useful for correcting our mistakes. It's useful for making our lives whole again. Useful for training us to do what is right. By using Scripture, the servant of God can be completely prepared to do every good thing. Hmm. What about prophecy? That's a good one to talk about when you think about the supernaturalness of the Bible. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. The main distinction between the Bible and other religious writings is its ability to predict the future accurately. It only makes sense if the author is God and he wants to prove its validity. Therefore, fulfilled prophecy really makes the Bible unique. According to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, There are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament, 578 in the New Testament. So there's a total of 1,817 future predictions. But this claim of divine inspiration is no idle boast. You see, anyone claiming to speak for God, if they weren't 100% right, they were supposed to be put to death. Now that was the law. Be careful with this one, you know, We used to be under the law. Now in the New Testament, we're under grace. So if somebody comes and does some prophecy thing in front of you and they're wrong, let's don't kill them. We live under grace now. But here's what the law said back in Deuteronomy. Any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name or who speaks in the name of another God must die. But you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. That prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. That's very important to know. If there's a false prophet trying to scare you into something or out of something, be careful with that. If it's not from the Lord, you don't have to pay it any mind. Now, knowing the severity for a fake prophet, not only did that eliminate charlatans, but it also made God's prophets uniquely qualified. Let's consider just a few examples of the accuracy of the Bible through prophecy. Just a few examples. In fact, only messianic prophecies. Let's just talk about those. The prophecies that were all about Jesus Christ. First of all, his conception. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin is going to have a baby. She'll give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. No one can determine how a person's going to be born, especially by a virgin, and centuries later. What about his birthplace? But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. You little wimpy thing, you. But from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. No one can determine where a person will be born, especially centuries before. His betrayal, the prophet Zechariah said, so they paid me 30 silver coins. The Lord said to me, throw those coins to the potter. That amount shows how little they valued me. So I threw the 30 silver coins to the potter at the Lord's temple. Look at all that stuff that happened. 30 silver coins in the temple. The potter, it was paid the the potter's field. No one can determine the betrayal of another person. The coinage and all the way it's supposed to be used. What about his death? This is in Psalm 22. Many enemies are all around me. They're like roaring lions to tear to pieces what they kill. They open their mouths wide to attack me. That pretty much happened to Jesus. My strength is like water that is poured out on the ground. When he died on the cross, blood and water flowed. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I'm I'm thirsty, he said. I'm thirsty, give me something to drink. Everyone can see all my bones right through my skin. My, my hands and feet were pierced. People stare at me. They laugh at me when I suffer. They divide up my clothes. They cast lots for what I'm wearing. All that happened. All that happened. Nobody can describe so exactly how a person will be tortured and murdered. Do you see that? And that's just messianic prophecies. There in, in just a few of them. There's prophecies about nations falling and and people being raised up and torn down and all that. Okay, enough of the Bible stuff? Are you convinced? (laughs) Are you convinced that it's a pretty clear, accurate, ancient piece of writing? So why don't we talk about the second thing, your experience, your experience with God, The book of Acts records this, that the leaders saw how bold Peter and John were. They also realized that Peter and John were ordinary men with no training. This surprised the leaders. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those. They realized that these men had been with Jesus. It showed. As a Christian, your own testimony is proof that God is alive. Because he has changed your life, your values, your habits. He's changed your destiny. Of all the evidences of our faith being real, your experience of having the Holy Spirit literally inside of you is the most powerful proof of all. Your conscience is alive, God speaks to you in the depths of your heart. And you have a peace that you never knew before because you have a clean conscience before God. And that's kind of coupled with an assurance of heaven. Ask yourself if the original disciples and apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection would give up their lives as martyrs if they knew it was all a lie. Would they do that... And a person may give their life for what they really believe in, but no one would die for what they knew to be false. So how blind do you feel about your faith right now? How blind are we? We've got evidence of the Bible being true. We have our own lives being touched, being changed for the better. But if that's not enough for you, you have got more. Number three, answered prayer. Answered prayer. The writer of Hebrews says, let us boldly approach God's throne of grace. Then we will receive mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it. This is something equally powerful to the previous point about your personal experience because God has graciously granted your prayer requests. As in the movie, God's Not Dead we see some examples of how his yes isn't immediate all the time. Sometimes his answer is wait. Sometimes his answer is no. But we all have examples in our lives where God came through for us when we prayed for something, sometimes miraculously, just can't be denied. The fourth thing is creation. Creation all around us. Paul says, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. According to Paul, everyone knows God exists. Everyone knows it because of the amazing things we see around us. The wings of a dragonfly, a baby's birth, a snowflake under a microscope, or the Milky Way on a clear night. It's everywhere. We all know that these intricate layouts in creation imply that there is a designer. Somebody figured that out. Maybe your iPhone just appeared in your pocket overnight, but somebody figures things out. (laughs) Number five, another powerful one, the church, capital C, the church, globally. Jesus was talking to Saul and wanted to change his name. He said, you are Peter. Peter means rock. And he said, on this rock, not, not Peter, but the rock, the faith that he's talking about Peter having. That rock, solid faith. On this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. And he says, the gates of hell will not be strong enough to destroy it. Despite the Romans' persecution in the first century on the church, and surviving over 2,000 years of global persecution... The church continues to exist. 2,000 years of being beat back, beat back, and the church is still here. Amazing. Even in deadly communistic and Islamic countries, right up to today. In other words, not only has your life been changed, but millions of others also testify to this same transformation by God's Spirit. The permanence of the church is a strong testimony to the divine protection that Jesus promised Peter. But don't stop there. In addition to that, we shouldn't just think in terms of defense. You know, how the gates are protecting us. Notice this passage uses that image of gates to show the limited power of hell. Gates... Do not attack. Then A gate doesn't attack. Look out, here come the gates. No, gates keep enemies out. There are other translators that give us a more literal way to understand what Jesus was telling Peter and the church. This is out of the message translations. And there are quite a few that say it like this. This is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. In other words, it's not just that we're protected from the invasions of hell. It's also that the church has the power to storm the gates of hell, to invade hell. Jesus already did that. He defeated death and sin and all of hell when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. I want to show an example from the movie God's Not Dead of this. And I want to close with this. And, And notice something in this. When we think of storming the gates of hell, we think of things like Armageddon the big spiritual war that's going to come at the end times. But you know, we can also storm the gates of hell in very quiet places, very private places. This clip shows a son mocking his mother's faith. And he concludes, after comparing her life to his, that his life is perfect, and hers has been a mission of blind faith. And it starts as an invasion. You'll notice that this guy is invading the faith that Jesus gave his church. But then notice how this old woman, who has a severe case of dementia, doesn't remember anything, doesn't make any sense in the rest of the movie, but she's used to invade the quote-unquote gates of hell. Watch this. I don't even know what I'm doing here I mean it's not like you even know who I am Anything wrong, and here you are, you're the nicest person I know, I am the meanest, you have dementia, my life is perfect, explain that to me. Sometimes the devil allows people to live a life free of trouble because he doesn't want them turning to God. Their sin is like a jail cell, except It's all nice and comfy, and there doesn't seem to be any need to leave. The door is wide open. One day time runs out the cell door slams shut and suddenly it's too late <sighs> who did you say you were? You ever wonder when you're kind of put in a spot where you're being questioned, your faith is being put to a test? I mean, that's a fiction movie, but very possible, very probable that things like that happen all the time. The Holy Spirit can speak through you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to cower from uh, sharing your faith. Now, You do want to be following the Holy Spirit, but stay prayed up on this. You know, it's not just about knowledge. It's not, in fact, the Bible even says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Let's pray. Let's pray that God will use us in ways we never dreamed would happen before. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that that you are alive. You're so far from dead. You came back to life. You busted the grave open to come back to life. And you are the ruler of the universe as well as us. So God, we ask that you would fill us up with, with your spirit. So when our family members or friends or classmates or people that we work with, when when their faith is, is low or if they have just a complete distrust that you exist at all, that you'd give us the right words to say, that you'd give us the right ways to act. And God, I pray that you would do that not just for ourselves personally, but I pray that you would do it so the kingdom of God will be advanced, that heaven will be populated higher and higher. That number would grow because you're using people at Cornerstone Christian Church and and churches all around the world to spread your truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, that you are alive. And we thank you for this, and we look forward to how you're going to use us in the future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.